Well, it's great to be with all of you here and with everyone across our campuses. Today, we are in week two of our new series called For the Good of the World. Last week, we found out that God hasn't just saved us from our sins so that we can go to heaven after we die. While that's true, it's not complete. He's also saved us for the purpose of joining him and helping to make this world a better place. And that's not just simply our calling individually, but it's our calling collectively as the church. And so today, we want to pick up where we left off last week by asking this question, how can the church be good for the world? How can the church be good for the world? Now, I think if you're a church person here, or even if you're not a church person here today, I think this is such an important question for us to ask, because I think all of us would agree that we want to be a part of a movement or a community that's making a positive contribution to the world, don't we? Yeah. But some of you might be thinking, well, is the church really the group of people that can do that? I mean, is the church actually good for the world? You can probably answer that multiple ways. Some of you might be thinking, well, if you look back throughout history, the church really hasn't been all that good for the world. Think about the Crusades, Inquisition, other holy wars. Thinking about segments of the church that have perpetuated injustices that they should have combated. Thinking about people called to be, to love just like Christ has loved us and instead being some of the most harsh, judgmental, guilt and shame-inducing people, hurting people instead of helping and saving them. While the church certainly has some glaring sins in its past, it also has done some great uh, good in the world that's often been overlooked. Here are a few examples. In the ancient times, it was commonplace for people who did not want their children because they might be of the wrong gender, to just abandon them. And the church said, no, that is not right. So they were the first to found orphanages. In the fourth century, members of the church were the first people to help found what became a hospital. And all throughout its history, the church has been really passionate about uh, compassion endeavors. We started organizations that you're familiar with, like the Red Cross, or Habitat for Humanity, or International Justice Mission, or the Salvation Army. And any time you see organizations at work like this, you are seeing the touch of Jesus on the world through his church. The church is about promoting education as well. In more ancient times, only boys from elite families were those who were able to afford education. But the church said, we need to teach everyone. And so they founded uh, schools and, and the university model and began some of the most famous universities throughout the world, including Oxford, whose motto is, the Lord is my light. In 1636, they founded a school, the first one here in America for, for a university, and it was designed to train Puritan pastors for ministry and to contend for God's truth. I'm willing to bet you've heard of it before. It's called Harvard University. No church, no Harvard the church has been really good for the world. And even more of recent times, the church has helped combat the world's bad breath problem with products like Testaments right here. <laughs> and the Believe in God breath spray. And if you can't read the fine print, it says it's not only miraculously minty, but it is a faith-enhancing breath spray. Can you believe they don't make that stuff anymore? So the church has undoubtedly been really good for the world, even though it's had some glaring sins. And since it's been good for the world throughout history, it can be good for the world today, here and now. And so we want to ask ourselves this question, how can the world be good for the world today? 
And to know that, we have to take a close look at what is the world like that we find ourselves in. And so this morning, we're going to ask that question first. What kind of world do we find ourselves in? And then secondly, how can we be a force for good in this world? And to do that, we're going to turn all the way back to the book of Jeremiah, to a letter that God sent to people who found themselves in a world that they really didn't prefer to be in, yet were called to make a big impact for it anyways. God still had a calling for them. And if you find yourself today in a situation that you might not prefer to be in, I'm willing to bet that God might have a great calling for you as well. So if you brought your Bibles with me, I'd invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll look at verses 1 through 7, or you can follow along on the screens with me here as well. Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon. Let's pause there. And just as a tip, if you ever have to read biblical names publicly, you should read them with such confidence that you can convince people you actually know how to pronounce them. <laughs> but without getting too boggled down in the names here, what can we learn from this passage? First, it's a letter sent from Jeremiah, who was a prophet, called by God to deliver a very unpopular message. God wanted Jeremiah to tell the people that their stability and their security as a nation was going to be dependent upon their ability to fulfill God's commandments for them. But the people didn't want to listen. They not only rejected Jeremiah's messages, but they rejected Jeremiah, and ultimately, they were rejecting God himself. And because of that, God gave them up to the consequences of their decisions and their choices. He allowed the rising empire of the day, the Babylonians, to come and conquer this nation here of Judah. And as they came, King Nebuchadnezzar would do something that was very strategic. He would round up all the best and the brightest, the leaders, the, the most skilled artisans and workers, those who had the greatest amount of influence within the people's lives. And he would then send them off into exile. And the reason he would do that was so that the people who remained would be much more easily governed by the foreign invaders. So what was exile like for those who were deported from Jerusalem to Babylon? Well, the journey would have been about 700 miles. And from the map here, you can see, if you know your geography uh, decently, that Babylon was located in what today would be Iraq. There's ruins that still are there of the city that you can see. Now, this experience would have felt so foreign to them. The land was oddly flat. The, uh, the landscape was very barren very desolate compared to what they were used to. I imagine being in a foreign place like that would be very equivalent to what it might feel like for us to be deported from America to present-day Iraq. While that's hard for us to imagine, the experience of exile to a lesser degree is something I'm willing to bet all of us are at least a little familiar with. One of my favorite writers, Eugene Peterson, describes exile this way. He says, exile is being where you don't want to be with people you don't want to be with. 
Teenagers, I think, have another name for that. They call it school. Adults might call it work. Tried and true Bostonians might call it New York. Germaphobes might call it water parks or publicly used bowling balls. Lovers of great music might call it a country concert. I'm sorry, bad, bad. I'm just trying to have a little fun. Sorry, no, no. I know what you're probably thinking right now. Dave, these examples aren't just good, they're exile-lent. I know, I could babble on and on about these, but that's enough punishment for, for one day here, so... I bet if I was going to ask for a show of hands, who has gone through an exile experience here today across all of our campuses, I imagine just about every hand would be up. I imagine many of us today might feel like there's some circumstance or situation in our life that we find ourselves in that we don't want to be in, or we might have some people around us that we don't want to be with. Because exile, and the reason for this is because exile, it is an inescapable reality of life. It's inescapable. Just think about how we're born into this world. We spend nine months in the womb, and then we are exiled into the world. The reason they call the first three months of a child's life, or they refer to it as the fourth trimester, is because it feels so shocking to a newborn's life that parents try to do their best to recreate womb-like conditions outside of the womb because it feels like exile. And from there, the pattern of exile only continues throughout the duration of our entire lives. We go from childhood to be, having to be exiled from home to school. We're students and we get exiled to work. We get exiled from work into retirement. We can be exiled geographically from our hometowns to different cities, to different states, to different uh, places, even different countries, either willingly or perhaps because we had no other choice to make. Some of the uncertainties of life can really bring about exile as well. People pass on. Relationships end. Companies downsize. Laws change. Our bodies deteriorate. Perhaps what is the most upsetting reality of exile is that no one asks our permission before rearranging our lives right out from under us. We are all strangers in a strange land. We are all exiles. And even here in the American church, it feels like we as the body of Christ are in much more of an exiled type of territory than we've maybe found ourselves before. I can remember growing up that I had the impression that to some degree, America was a Christian nation. But it seems like in more recent times, no one's asked our permission and they've rearranged the ground right out from underneath us. It's probably more fitting today to speak of America as a post-Christian nation. And those who hold the historic Christian beliefs and still try to follow Jesus are not only seen as being antiquated or outdated, but even referred to many as being bigoted. We are strangers. We are exiles. So when you find yourself in an exile-like situation, you have two choices that you can make. You're kind of forced into a decision. The first option is that you can decide to focus on what you do not have any longer. You can focus on what's missing or what you think should be there that isn't. And that can lead to bitterness and frustration and you can do your work with resentment. Or secondly, you can choose instead 
to try and make the situation that you find yourselves in better, to make the most of where God has allowed you to end up in this stage of your life. If you choose option two, it's really important to be mindful that God is still here in this place, that God is still at work among these people, and he's inviting you to be a part of what he's doing. And I think we're listening today because we want to make that second choice. We want to choose the way of making the world better. And what God instructed to the exiles who were finding themselves in Babylon can be really helpful for us today. So the world that we find ourselves in is a world of exile. And let's see now how we as the church can be good for this world of exile. Let's pick up here with verse four. The letter said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let's pause there. The exiles probably thought that it was Nebuchadnezzar who was the one who carried them off into exile. But God wants to correct them right here. Although it appeared like it was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, it in fact was God himself who carried them off into exile. He's the one who's ultimately in charge here. He's the one who has orchestrated this, either directly or passively. We're not really sure quite how to reconcile that. But we do know this that what Nebuchadnezzar intended for evil, God ultimately intended for good. And here's how that happened. Centuries after God's people found themselves in exile, there was a man named Paul who was commissioned by Jesus to go to all the nations and proclaim the good news of Jesus, to found churches there. And anytime Paul would enter into a new city, what Paul would do is he would first find where the group of Jewish people living there were. They were called the diaspora or the dispersion. And how did these people who were based in Jerusalem find themselves all over the world? It was because they were taken into exile centuries ago. And what seemed like an inescapable, terrible reality, God ended up using for good. God can turn any hell into a hello, like we saw in our video. And we've got a few more good ones coming up with some new puns, which I really love, and it's gonna be great. So uh, stay tuned for that. But we need to remember just as the, uh, the people in exile did then, that God, he is always working all things together for good, even no matter what you're going through as well. So let's pick up here to see how he continues to instruct them. Verse five and six. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So God's essentially telling them, settle down and build a really good life here because you're not going anywhere for a while. Down in verse 10, it actually tells us, uh, the, the God says to them that you're gonna be here for 70 years. This is gonna last 70 years. So make yourselves at home right here. And so the first way then that the church can be good for the world, as God tells the exiles here, is that they need to be in it. They need to be in the world. One of our big tendencies in the church is to, out of fear, kind of withdraw and try to escape from the world. And God doesn't tell the, Babylon, or the people in Babylon to do that at all. Instead, he tells them to be in it, settle down in it, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat what they produce, take wives and sons, and increase, don't decrease. Now, for those who would have heard this for the, uh, in exile for the first time, they would have thought back 
to the beginning of God's word to them. In Genesis 1, this idea of increasing is taken from what we know as what's called the great mandate. The great mandate. Here's what it says in Genesis 1, 28. It says to be fruitful and to multiply. It tells them to increase. It tells them to, to have dominion over the world. Care for it. You're in charge. And just as God called his people at the very beginning to increase and to multiply and be fruitful, so he tells us to be fruitful as well. He tells the exiles there. As we heard last week, it's, it's as good as it is to live life with God. Living life with God is never simply an end in itself. It is a means to the end of helping us bless other people to give great glory to God. So he tells them to be fruitful. And being fruitful in the sense of reproducing and having more kids and giving your kids to be married, that's not a command simply for the nuclear family or for people who find themselves married today. But it's a, it is a call for all of God's people because God is building a family of families. And for us to do that well, we all have to do our part. I'm thrilled that we have great next generation ministries here at Grace. And one of the big terms that's been introduced over the last couple of years is that we are to be faith parenting. But it's not just going to take faith parenting to help raise up a strong family of families for the good of the world. It's going to take faith uncling and aunting, faith brothering and sistering, even faith cousining. It's going to take all of us to do our part steadily and slowly. But we need to remember this, that you cannot underestimate the power of faithful, steady obedience to God, even if you don't see the immediate results. Put that up on the screens. You cannot underestimate the power of faithful, steady obedience to God, even if you don't see the immediate results. So maybe God right now is just calling you to be faithful, to do what needs to be done. And along with that command to increase, God tells them to garden. God tells them to garden. Now, for some of us, that might seem like a great command. Others of us are like, oh, I don't, that's a lot of work. But what God is saying here is to be in the world in such a way that the very agricultural rhythms of Babylonian life, that they become the rhythms of life that you lived by. Grow really good food. Cultivate the lands so that you can contribute positively to the economy of the place. To have an economy that blesses everybody, not just those in power. So God says to be in it so that you can contribute to it and show a different way. So the first way the church can be uh, good for the world is to be in it and, uh, instead of withdrawing from it. Secondly, the church and God's people here in exile are to be for the world. They're to be for it. Here's what he says in verse 7. But seek the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city that I have sent you here into exile. Now, often as the church, we have this posture of defensiveness or, or of wanting to take over the world. We aren't for the world's flourishing. We are for our own victory. We want to be against the world instead of for it. But God says, no, no. Here's how we get this right. Be for it. To be for something means that you want to add value to that place in which you find yourselves. And what's the value that God wants them to add? It's the value of peace and prosperity. That's one Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word most of us have probably heard before. It's the word shalom, shalom. It's a word that doesn't just mean peace, but it means wholeness, completeness, the way things are supposed to be. It's a word that helps summarize the comprehensive flourishing that is God's heart for all people to be able to experience. 
And there are four ways that we can really be promoters of shalom here in our world as well, to be good for the world. The first is we can help promote peace with self. Peace with self. That's physical health, mental and emotional well-being. One of the ways that God tells the exiles to do this is to grow really good food because eating really good food helps people to be healthy and whole and strong physically. And the rest of flourishing kind of spills out from that. In the same way, through our interactions with others and how we do our jobs, we can promote peace with self in so many ways. How might you be able to do that? Secondly, we're to promote peace with others. Peace with others. They're the work to help uh, show great economic principles that don't just benefit the elite, but that benefit everybody, not just themselves, but even the Babylonians. Where there's injustice, they are to help fight for it. Where there are people that are separated, they're to help bring reconciliation and forgiveness. Where there's loneliness and isolation, God's people are to be for this city by helping bring about belonging and community. So peace with self, peace with others. Thirdly, peace with the world. That's another way we can add the value of shalom. And that means peace with the environment, practicing sustainable gardening methods, maximizing the world's resources without exploiting them, helping pass on sustainable environmental sorts of um, policies and practices that will benefit generations to come. But as much as you can be for someone's personal peace and the peace with others and peace with the world. We know that ultimate wholeness and completeness and shalom cannot be found apart from a right relationship with God. And so lastly, and ultimately, they were to help promote peace with God. Yes, God's people are to care for more than the spiritual well-being of the world, but they are never to care for less. So we are to be in the world, not withdrawing from it. We are to be for the world, not against it. And then thirdly and lastly, we are to remain not of the world. To be in it, for it, but not of it. The second half of verse seven says this, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare or prosperity, so you, will you too prosper. So pray for the city. It's pretty cool that if the city flourishes, that God's people too will prosper and flourish. I just love that. But the biggest thing that's going to deter that from being a possibility in, in our world is if we as God's people become too much like the world, too much of the world. Now, it might be important here to help distinguish how scripture uses the word world in two very different ways. It can use the word world positively to refer to the physical landscape and all the inhabitants who are here on earth. But it can also be used in a very negative sense. And that's to talk about the force of evil that's at work and the patterns, the ways of life in the world that really appear to be good, but are actually incredibly detrimental to the possibility of shalom taking hold and taking root in a place. So to be in the world in a very positive way and remain not of the world in that negative sense, God tells his people to become a people of prayer. Be a people of prayer. Prayer helps take the attention off of ourselves and put it back where it rightly belongs to God. Prayer helps us make that option to choice by not focusing so much on what is missing, but being grateful for all that we do have. Prayer helps us be mindful of the fact 
that God is on the move. And the more time that we spend with God through prayer, that's what it's all about, communing with God, the more time we spend with him, the more we'll become like him. And the more we're like God in this world, working for this world, the better off this world will be. But here in our world today, I think our American church in particular, we've allowed ourselves to become too much of the world. And I think the whole world is paying for it. They're suffering because of it. One of the biggest pieces of evidence that signifies that the church has become too much of the world is by this phenomenon that has arisen called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It seems to be the sort of way of life and belief that is characterized by a lot of millennial generations' faith. Millennials are those born roughly between 1980 and 2000. And this way of life and this way of believing, it seems to be pretty good, but I think it's undercutting and ruining the church from the inside out. And as a result, it's minimizing the impact we can have for good on the world. Here's what moralistic therapeutic deism stands for. Here's some of its tenets. First, there's a God who created and orders the world and watches over human life on the earth. He created, but he's kind of distant from it. He's not actively involved. That's the deism piece. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. That's the moralistic piece. Thirdly, and most alarmingly, the central goal of life, according to moralistic therapeutic deism, is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. There's the therapeutic side. Fourthly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. I think we're all a little guilty of using God instead of being with him like that. And then lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, while this kind of faith seems harmless at first, I think it is, in fact, what's wrecking the church from the inside out. I think the greatest lie that all of us live believing as that it is our right and it should be our ultimate goal to pursue happiness. But probably the greatest way to guarantee that you will not be happy is to try and be happy. As ironic as that sounds, because happiness always depends on circumstances. And as we find, our whole life is gonna be a shift from one type of exile to another. So our circumstances are gonna change. We can't get bank on those. And so if we try to be happy, we're gonna end up more miserable than ever. But the way to be happy is to be in that right relationship, that shalom with the author of happiness. And that's with God. And that's available to all of us here and now. But I think as the church, we have tried to accommodate ourselves to be so relevant to the world, to try and meet people right where they are, to try and meet their needs, that we've allowed the ways of the world to pervade us far too much when it comes to things like sexuality and our use of technology in particular. It's hard to differentiate Christians or the church from anybody else. And as a result of that, I think we have forfeited our capability to bless and to love the world as best as we possibly can. Here's a couple of ways I try and summarize this. We're not able to truly love the world if we're of the world too much. We're not able to truly love the world if we're too much of the world. That's why God calls us to be separate, to be holy, to be different, to be distinctive. And then secondly, I could maybe summarize it this way. The more the church is like the world, the less the church will be able to bless the world. 
That's why God calls us not to be of it so that we can be for its ultimate good, so that we have something else to offer. So to try and summarize these three ideas for how can the church be good in the world of exile? We need to be in it. We need to be for it, but we must remain not of it. And if we were going to add these three sort of things up and to provide a little term to encapsulate it all, I would use this term, faithful presence. Faithful presence. What is faithful presence? One author named David Fitch, he describes this term, which has kind of been introduced to the world of the church in the last decade. And here's how he describes it. God's plan is to become present to the world in and through a people and then invite the world to join with him. The world then sees God's presence among us and through us and joins in with God. And the world is changed. This is faithful presence. To try and summarize that, what do you get if you take a people who are living life with God, they're in the world, they're for the world, but they're not of the world? What would you call a group of people like that? You'd call them the church, right? You'd call them the church. Faithful presence is just simply uh, the church as it's meant to be. Not the church withdrawn from the world, not the church against the world, not the church of the world, but to be a faithful presence for the good of the world. And when the church lives as a faithful presence, The church can be that force of good like we saw on the video earlier. See, a faithful presence, catch this, faithful presence is what helps an exiled world find a way home. A faithful presence is what helps an exiled world find its way home. And that home is not to simply a zip code, but that home is is the world's and everyone's heart's true home. And that, of course, is with God. That's how the church can be really good for the world, by being a faithful presence. That's our true calling. But this idea of faithful presence, while it might seem relatively new to you, it's as old as the scriptures tell us. It's from the beginning of the world. God tells his people all the way back in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply, be for the world, be fruitful to uh, to help it out. He tells them all through here uh, to the Babylonians here in Jerusalem, now being exported from, sorry, from Jerusalem to Babylon. He tells them to seek the peace and prosperity of this world. And believe it or not, if we read kind of further on in the scriptures and look at this from a historical standpoint, God's people in exile actually did this. They actually did this. They started to take the scriptures more seriously. And history tells us they did some of the most creative, best work they ever did in this period of exile. Exile ended up being good for them. And it can be good for us as well. But not only was this idea of faithful presence initiated in Genesis, but was it carried out uh, in, in, in very good ways here in the exile, but it was ultimately fulfilled through Jesus' faithful presence here on this earth. He's the one who was with God in the heavens, but he came to live among us in a world of exile so that he could be for this world. He didn't come to condemn it, but he came to save it by his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection so that all could experience life and shalom to the fullest. And now he has given the church the same mission, to be a faithful presence, to be a force for good in the world, to bring about shalom everywhere that we interact. 
And so the church then can be really good for the world by being a faithful presence that's in the world, for the world, but not of the world. But folks and my friends, we don't just wanna settle to be good for the world as a church. We wanna be great, don't we? We wanna be great for the world. And here's how we can do that. We can be great for the world when the church is being the church. The best thing the church can do for the world is for us to be the church. Because when the church is being the church, exiles can find their way home. And that is really good for the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the good news that we have. Thank you so much for the gift of the church. That for many of us who find ourselves living in exile-like conditions, that we have a community that we can come home to each and every week. I pray for every person here, God, that they might enter into that same type of fellowship. It's not perfect. We've made mistakes over the years, but it's the hope of the world. And thank you, Jesus, that you've given us that calling. Forgive us for the ways that we, out of fear, have withdrawn from the world. Forgive us for the ways that we have been against the world instead of for it. And forgive us, God, for some of the ways that we've been too much of the world. We just want to open our lives to you right now. And we pray that you would cleanse us, that you'd free us from any of the patterns of this world that we've conformed to that are not only hurting us, but are hindering our capabilities to bless the world as best as we can. So give us your strength and grace, Jesus, and help us to live for you and for your glory now and always. And it's in his name we all pray together. Amen. Amen. Amen.